Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Sri Kumar Baskaran, who is an Associate Professor of Information Technology and Operations Management at the Southern Methodist University's Cox School of Business. His research focuses on new product development and innovation. Welcome, Sri. Thank you, Gil. A uh, pleasure to be here. And yeah, thanks uh, for doing certainly this. Certainly love the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers. selling and leasing strategies for durable goods with complementary products you say it has been recognized that when a durable goods manufacturer sells its output it has an incentive to produce at a rate that will drive down the market price of the product over time um because anticipation of declining prices makes consumers less willing to invest in owning the durable durable good selling can be self defeating for the manufacturer you see the manufacturer instead leases the product it can eliminate so in selling to decrease the price over time which allows it to extract larger rents from consumers it's a bit counterintuitive but it is sort of makes sense so i want to ask you so this is the case when you have complementary products in the market and the manufacturer doesn't really have any monopoly uh position right i i can understand the manufacturer has an incentive to drive down the cost of manufacturing uh, but the reason it wants to reduce or drive down market price over time is that it's seeking market share in a company absolutely form. absolutely when you kind of hit up on a very important point gil and in fact typically when i talk about durable goods i actually start with uh, i mean a story that my grandmother used to tell me when i was very young i mean uh, there is the story of a potter uh, somebody who makes pots in this village i mean this is the story that she told me umpteen times when i was very young and it seems like it left a very indelible mark in my mind that i sometimes uh, think about it in the context of durable goods too so the, the problem with pots 
if you understand, right? I mean, it basically breaks, right? I mean, so imagine that you are a potter who makes these clay pots, gives it to the villagers, you give it to them, invariably they break and they come back and complain to you, why are you making these uh, I mean, low quality ones and giving it to me? And he always bears the brunt of those, uh, I mean, uh, criticism, so to say, right? So he decided, you know what, I'm going to do what I can beyond making pots to see whether something can be done. So he started You have frozen, Sri. Um, I wonder. I wonder if you if you can hear me. I wonder if you want to go out and come back in, perhaps. I'm, oh, back. Sorry. I'm uh, sorry. I think uh, sometimes what happens is the Wi-Fi network, it actually switches between two different ones in the house and then it uh, tends to kind of uh, um, get yeah. this. Maybe that is what happened, I think. No, no worries. I can edit this out. So so, so you, are, you are talking about the potter um, and the products that he sells. They're not durable. They're not durable, they break, right? And so he prays to God and after a while, God comes before him and asks him, I mean, what do you want? And he said, you know what? I want to make pots that don't break. And God was like, sure you want that? And he said, yeah, I mean, this is the one thing which I just cannot do anything about. Everybody is complaining to me. I want to make pots from here on, which don't break at all. God said, so be it. And then uh, he was very happy. Uh, I mean, so he started making these pots. They are not breaking. And of course, the villagers were very happy, right? I mean, they kept on uh, uh, coming back and buying a lot of pots. The only problem was after a while, they stopped buying any more pots because they never break, right? I mean, this is what we call the curse of durability, right? I mean, of course, in reality, there is no perfect durable product. But as the durability increases, you're actually creating competition for yourself, right? Any product that is out there, you created, you produced, that's actually going to come back and hurt your ability to command prices in the future, right? So when you sell products, this is what happens, right? I mean, you sell a, a car today, tomorrow that's going to go into the secondary market and you don't have any control over the prices of that secondary market. And that tends to kind of uh, I mean, depress uh, your ability to generate monopoly profits. And this has been a well-recognized problem. Um, and the way to overcome this would be to somewhat eliminate the secondary market. You don't have ability to control it, but there are some things that you can do if you are a monopolist man, monopolistic uh, manufacturer. Suppose you lease the product. When you lease the product, you don't transfer ownership to your uh, uh, I mean, uh, consumers. You retain ownership which means that the secondary prices also will now get dictated by your choices. And hence, the uh, ability to retain monopolistic uh, I mean, uh, prices remains with you, and hence you will end up making more profit. So this is the crux of the problem, right? I mean, 
So if you have a durable good manufacturer being able to kind of, uh, I mean, lease the product as opposed to sell it, that can actually lead to greater profitability. But we started thinking about it and as good as leasing might be, it is not as popular in practice, right? I mean, and so maybe there are some other factors that are contributing to, uh, I mean, uh, what uh, individual firms are deciding on what they need to do. And, uh, and one thing which we realize when we think about any durable good product in general, right? I mean, products don't exist in isolation. I mean, if you want, I mean, it, it's great to have an HDTV or a, a 4K TV. I mean, when we wrote the paper, HDTV was actually the uh, product that was just coming into the market. It's great to have a, a really, uh, I mean, a innovative product like that. But it's worth it only if there is compatible programming also out there. If all the programming is still standard definition, what is the problem? What is the point in having a, a really high definition uh, TV in front of you when you are still watching the same programming, right? I mean... Similarly, think about, uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, electric cars or, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, unless and until there is good batteries that are available, you might not be able to get better value out from that. So when you think about uh, I mean, products in general, there are durable products and there are also complementary products that you need to buy to obtain commensurate value from those products which you bought, right? And so the existence of those complementary products are actually important if you are a manufacturer that is selling, uh, I mean, uh, goods to your consumers. Now, imagine the situation in which I am leasing the product. I'm retaining control over the, uh, I mean, uh, secondary market so that I can keep the prices high. If the price of a, 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 the, a, the core product is very high, then maybe I might not buy so much of those products, and I might not also have incentive to buy the complementary goods that other manufacturers are producing because it's it's all very tightly interlinked, right? I mean, and in, in, in that sense, my insistence on maintaining monopoly power actually reduces the profits and what uh, profits of the complementary good providers like the, uh, the studios who might be building complementary programming. If that's the case, what is the incentive for them to make the necessary investments? So they might not make the necessary investments. The quality of those programmings might go down or they might not make any programs available, which actually comes and comes and comes back and bites me in the form of lower demand for the core product that I'm selling. So if understand this correctly, see there are two issues. Um, one is for the manufacturer of a durable product, as you say, yeah, the manufacturer is going to be in competition with itself. Exactly. For, for future sales, right? So that's one issue. The other issue is the complementarity. So the manufacturer, when it, when, when it sells a product, um, it is selling part of a portfolio of things that the consumer has to buy to complete the purchase, so to speak, right? And so uh, in some sense, if you just sell it, um, and the consumer is either resource constrained or not willing to add the portfolio, the consumer is not really deriving the benefits of the product in its entirety and hence uh, ultimately assumes the value of the product to be a lot lower than what it could have been, right? Absolutely. And so, so if you go to the, the second part of this problem, you say leasing, leasing the product gives the manufacturer some level of some mitigation against this, right? No, no, actually the leasing, that's the opposite. 
leasing what it does is it actually i mean uh, takes away i mean i mean uh, force i mean or rather allows him to have more control over the secondary market but unfortunately that hurts him it's like if i'm trying to kind of get everything to myself right on the one hand i'm actually getting a, a larger share of the pie that is getting generated but the size of the pie that gets generated through this arrangement that's going to be much smaller so unless and until these uh, i mean uh, studios and uh, i mean others end up generating the uh, complementary compatible programming i might not be able to kind of generate enough demand for my product so by my my insistence on kind of uh, leasing the product to control the secondary market because it reduces their profits they tend to invest less now what the manufacturer could do now is you know what i'm going to sell the product out there right which means that the prices are going to come down in the future i don't have any control over it the secondary market is going to behave in its own manner beyond what i am able to kind of control all of a sudden the complementary pr uh, providers they also know you know what he's not going to inorbitantly i mean uh, i mean he's not going to suddenly raise the price of his products to uh, collect a larger share of the resultant profits that or value that gets generated from the process they invest more more programming will come out better programming will come out the quality will improve consumers will buy more of the complementary goods they will also in turn buy more of the core durable product so everybody gets better off in the process so that's what so we so this is sort of the installed base effect isn't it so if i am selling the the complementary products uh, manufacturers can see an installed base and say uh, you know that's sort of a captured customer yeah and i can sort of estimate the size of that installed base and then provide additional products into it and so so there's a trade off here as you say in the paper right um selling outright has some advantages some disadvantages leasing has advantages and disadvantages so so how does a manufacturer optimize the strategy so he has two things to do here right i mean on the one hand he wants to control the secondary market to some extent right at the same time he also want to encourage his uh, uh, the, the complementary service providers to make the necessary investments so he can actually use the lease versus sell ratio how much he wants to lease and how much he wants to sell that ratio can essentially allow him to balance these two competing objectives if he leases more the investment on complementary goods will be suppressed if he sells more his uh, the competition from the secondary goods market will actually erode his profit so he needs to balance these two objectives at the same time and i would imagine there's a life cycle effect here too right so these these ratios are not stable in the sense that you know if you want to optimize profits over time you have to dynamically change this ratio because of the life cycle of products and complementary products and so on so it's a really complex and interesting problem and i was i was thinking you know let's think about iphones for example or or any other product you can imagine as a durable product um the marketing hype that goes with new uh, new introduction the next version of the product uh sometimes has a lot of value even though the next product is potentially even inferior <laughs> to the one that you you hold in your hand 
you put a bunch of marketing hype on it and then you get people onto the next version. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, I mean, what you mentioned makes so much sense, Gil. I mean, uh, you might have heard this term planned obsolescence, right? I mean, so it's like, I, I mean, if, I'm a, if I have a product that is really functioning now, do I have any incentive to buy something that is going to come out tomorrow in the holiday season? No, right? I mean, so I'm as a manufacturer, this life cycle effect is very important. And there are two ways in which you can actually do planned obsolescence. One is make a product that is really better than the previous one so that people are queuing for it, right? The other one is to kind of make it, in, I mean, make the previous product in a way that automatically fails very quickly, right? I mean, so if you think about what Apple was doing with their batteries, right? I mean, throttling the battery or uh, doing things that uh, essentially uh, make the product somewhat inferior. These are all different methods, different uh, ways in which, uh, I mean, firms, manufacturers tend to kind of uh, uh, manage the life cycle of a product. Because at the end of the day, I mean, I cannot just sit on my laurels. Once I sell a product, it's almost what, what, what are you going to do to do for me today? I mean, last year I had record sales, but what about tomorrow? Right. I mean, so managing the perception, managing the expectations, managing the life cycle, managing the technology. These are important. On top of it, you also need to manage the uh, ecosystem within which you are actually uh, I mean, operating. And for Apple, if you think about uh, the cell phone manufacturers, for example, one of the things that they might want to remember here is they need to manage the life cycle. But they also need to manage the expectations of the consumers as well as the app market and the ecosystems that uh, kind of sustain the demand for their products. Right. Yeah, and so I can see in in um, in mobile phones, I can see in automobiles. Um, you have another paper uh, related to this implications of channel structure for leasing or selling durable goods. Uh, so you say, in spite of the fact that many durable products are sold through dealers, the literature has largely ignored the issue of how product product durability affects the interactions between a manufacturer and her dealers. We seek to fill this gap by considering a durable goods manufacturer that uses independent dealers to get a product to, uh, to consumers. So automobiles is a good example of this. As far as I know, most automobile manufacturers uh, in the U.S. have independent dealers, except perhaps Tesla, as far as I know. Uh, and so, so what is the what is the reason for them to to deploy independent dealer network? Now, I mean, this is actually, uh, I mean, uh, kind of follows from some of the discussions that we had earlier. I was telling you, right? I mean, selling is actually kind of, uh, I mean, has some challenges associated with it when you're when you have a durable good. Now, the other kind of issues that sometimes might be important in the context of supply chains and distribution structures is what tends to happen when you don't go directly to consumers. So think about the typical retail supply chain that we have or the automobile supply chain we have, right? I mean. We have the, uh, I mean, Fords and the uh, Toyotas of the world essentially selling through independent dealers, right? Now, on the one hand, right, having the dealers is useful because it allows me to kind of focus on what I do best. I'm good at making the cars. The dealers are actually good at uh, selling the cars to, uh, I mean, the selling the vehicles to consumers. At the same time, if I were to make a better car, right? I mean, why do I make a better car? Because I want to make more profits. My better car is also going to increase the profits of the dealers, right? In other words, there is an externality that gets created, right? Part of the investments that I am making 
is actually going to be realized by the dealers and all the other partners in the supply chain. So technically what this means is that I have an incentive to underinvest because I don't get all the benefits for all the investments that I put in. And this is typically what we refer to in uh, operations management as double marginalization. So anytime you sell a product, because I need to get margins or profits, I slap on a margin on top of it. So when there are multiple intermediaries, everybody is going to slap a margin on it. And what occurs as a result is that the final price at which the product gets sold can be somewhat higher than what is socially optimal. Right? Now, this double marginalization results in lower profits, not just for me, if I'm a manufacturer, but also for the, uh, the dealer and the intermediaries because they are actually procuring things at a larger price. So their margin is also going to be higher. So the overall sales will be dampened even further. Right? So th th this is an interesting problem, right? I mean, on, so, but think about what I said earlier in the context of durable goods. When durable goods are there, and when you sell a durable good, the overall prices keep coming down because of the competition from the secondary market. Now, ideally, right? I mean, if we can have these complex contracts, right? That and, and there's been a lot of uh, study that has been done uh, that looks at a uh, lot of uh, different kinds of contract, uh, quantity discounts, I mean, uh, sales promotion contracts, advertising, a lot of different things can be used to coordinate the supply chain. And what coordination means here is that, I mean, rather than make independent decisions, the Ford making one decision with respect to their, uh, I mean, uh, what, what is under their purview, and dealers making their decisions, why not we all kind of sit on the table and then decide what needs to be done? And some sort of trust needs to be established saying that uh, we are going to uh, do things in a way that uh, shares the gains from that trade in an equitable manner. But that's hard to do, right? I mean, imagine getting two people to sit in the table and then kind of talk through some of these complex uh, negotiations. That, that That's hard to do, right? I mean, so here is where uh, uh, the beauty of the durable goods somewhat comes into picture. On the one hand, durable goods, they impose this pressure from the secondary market because of which prices go down. On the other hand, having intermediaries actually leads to double marginalization, increasing prices in the supply chain. But if we were to combine these two, it somehow balances these two problems. Because the secondary market actually puts a downward pressure on the prices, the problem that is associated with double marginalization in intermediated or uh, disintegrated supply chains, that is somewhat suppressed. And that works beautifully in the context of, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, auto manufacturers supply chains. The fact that you are actually selling the product rather than leasing it actually keeps the manufacturer in check and also the dealers in check overall profits will be improved and the consumer is also somewhat better off. And this is actually not taking into consideration any other benefits that uh, an intermediated supply chain might bring in. So it's, if it turns out that the dealer is better at selling the products and providing service, then it's even better. So without adding anything else, the fact that there is disintermediated supply chains can actually be a benefit when we think about durable good products. So if I understand this correctly, see what you're saying is that uh, the optimum point is is when you have both sales and leases, right? Yeah. Both sales and leases in some combination, the manufacturer has an optimum 
but the dealer has potentially a different optimum. So there is some sort of a, a conflict yeah. um, there uh, that you need to work out. Uh, so the, but the, the, the conflict kind of gets, uh, I mean, managed automatically because the manufacturer has a certain bit of control because they, depending upon what they decide needs to be the ratio, what the dealer can do is somewhat restricted. So in some way, the equilibrium emerges out of their interactions uh, in, in, in this context. Right, right. Of course, I mean, uh, what is needed to be kept in mind in this context is the, the ratio that we sometimes kind of derive, the mathematical ratio that we derive in the papers, right? I mean, that's only informative, but it does not say that this is what this 0.35 that we have in the paper is what you need to follow. What it does is it actually kind of tells you, you might not have thought about the implications of your decisions. You lease a little bit more. These are some of the things that would emerge out of that process. So as you think about what you need to do, take into consideration not just what happens to, uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the profitability at your end. You also need to think about how the decisions that are going to be made downstream at your retailer level, at your dealer level, how they are going to happen and how they will come back and determine what your own profitability would be. So those balancing acts, the ratios need to be determined carefully, taking into consideration all these things. Yeah, I know that you know Tesla has taken a different strategy, as you know. Uh, they went direct to consumer and really didn't have any intermediation. Um, do you see any advantages or disadvantages of that strategy? So, one of the reasons why disintermediation or rather vertical integration as we call it, right? I mean, going directly to consumers could be useful is because I'm not sharing any part of the margins with my manufacturer, with, with, with my dealer network, right? So I can control the supply chain. So in terms of being able to, uh, I mean, uh, determine the quality of the service that is provided at uh, different uh, dealer networks, I don't need to worry about it because I control the whole supply chain. Similarly, I mean, uh, if I were to kind of come up with the next generation of the uh, autopilot, right? I know the higher price that the consumers are going to pay, it completely comes to me. So I am more incentivized to put in better investments. I am going to put in more investments. So you can see some of those things kind of playing out in Tesla's case. They are much more innovative than most of the other auto manufacturers. And some of it you could attribute because anything that they do, they are able to kind of reap the benefits of those investments and that incentivizes them to put in those investments at a much greater level, at a much greater rate. Right Now, one thing that Tesla needs to, of course, worry about is in the short term, this would make sense. Right. I mean, Tesla is still smaller than, I mean, all those are slowly, I mean, uh, generating scale. Even at this point in time, if you were to combine the uh, larger auto market, they are still a smaller fraction of the overall uh, industry, right? I mean, so at this level, they might be able to kind of give that individual attention that the consumers require, need. But what happens if it becomes much larger? At that point in time, would you have the bandwidth to be able to make sure that anything that goes wrong with your, uh, I mean, consumers' uh, vehicles, you would be able to kind of respond to that very quickly? Maybe not. At that point in time, you might want to kind of look at partners who can help kind of transition that process. Maybe at that point in time, they might want to start looking at dealer networks. But the role of the dealer networks in that might be slightly different. Maybe it might be just service agencies that they might contract out to. 
rather than what we have wherein they are also selling these products through those dealer networks. So it will be an interesting thing to watch out for. I mean, what they might do in the short term and in the long term. Yeah, that's very intuitive. So innovation increases because a manufacturer captures all the profits in the supply chain. Yeah. It can also observe data in a in a lot more comprehensive way. So it has much higher understanding of price elasticity of the consumer. It can probably optimize pricing a lot better than, you know, this sort of squishy <laughs> dealer network in the middle. Um, but as you say, it's a scale problem. So, so what happens? I mean, Tesla is already a trillion-dollar company. <laughs> um, so, so, what happens when it becomes really big? Uh, that that would be an interesting transition for the yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the the competition is also going to kind of get more intense in this industry, right? I mean, and at that point in time, I mean, uh, um, there are a lot of different things that be that needs to be managed at the same time, right? I mean, and and this industry is going to go through some dramatic changes pretty soon, and at least for me, it's actually fun to watch from the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, this is a different topic, but very quickly, it seems like there are a lot of first mover advantages in this industry. So, um, when you go out to buy an electric car, one of the primary decision points would be where do I get a charge when I take it out? And if I buy a Tesla today, I can see superchargers all around the <laughs> all around the country. If I go buy a GM or something, um, that is not the case. So I think there's a huge first mover advantages that Tesla is holding on to. That is true, right? I mean, in, in, in Tesla's, uh, to Tesla's credit, right? I mean, what they have done well is one, they have essentially, uh, I mean, uh, come up with a pro high quality product that has uh, kind of ironed out a lot of kinks. So people, uh, consumers were willing to kind of open up their, uh, I mean, purses to purchase it. Uh, second, they have also kind of kept track of the process very well, right? I mean, they have, there's a lot of innovation that needed to happen, right? I mean, they have made the investments that were necessary at each and every level of this supply chain, right? I mean, so they have built chargers, They've kind of created the industry, so to say. Now, while first mover advantage does exist in certain cases, sometimes it can also be a, uh, I mean, liability, right? I mean, the, you, there are several examples of uh, firms wherein they moved first before the consumer was ready or the market was ready. And so they just could not anticipate what needed to be changed. And so sometimes sitting back and looking at what is evolving and then responding to what the final customer requirements or needs are, and then coming with a product according to their needs, I mean, that might sometimes turn out to be better. And um, the, the example that I always use is, uh, I mean, uh, in, in class, when I talk about uh, first mover versus second mover advantage is iPhones, right? I mean, um, nobody remembers, uh, not even iPhones, actually iPods, right? I mean, nobody remembers which the first, uh, I mean, uh, music uh, player was the portable music player based on hard drive was because there was this uh, company called Rio that actually came up with the product and then subsequently Dell had the jukebox. There were uh, several other companies that followed after that. We don't remember any of them, right? Much later, about five to six years after the initial player was launched, that's when, I mean, uh, I mean uh, Apple came up with their iPods, which turned out to be a big hit about two years later, right? I mean, and uh, one of the advantages that Apple had was kind of learn from the failures and the mishaps 
and the uh, uh, false steps that some of the previous manufacturers had made. And they realized that it is not just the product that matters, but also the ecosystem. So the iTunes software that allowed, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, allowed the consumers to be able to collate music, purchase music, uh, distribute music, all those things, that ecosystem that they built allowed them to actually create a very valuable product for their consumers and the rest is history, right? I mean, and they replicated the same success story across iPhones, iPads, and uh, the whole gamut of other things that they do right now, right? I mean, and so this is important, right? I mean, and in this case, what Tesla has done very well is, kind of do a lot of things well till now, right? At the same time, it's also kind of giving a blueprint for subsequent manufacturers as to what they need to do. In a lot of cases, what we tend to see is that uh, once standards are established, then it might be easier for you to kind of build things around it, right? So uh, you gave the example of chargers, right? Maybe one of the things that would happen is uh, there'll be some standardized chargers at that point in time, I mean, any charger that, uh, I mean, Tesla or any other manufacturers would have in the market would be the same thing that anybody else would be also able to use. But the Tesla would would have control over their chargers, right? They so this, this is sort of a policy decision. Yeah. And um, I didn't want to talk about this too much, but, you know, a good part of this is uh, built on taxpayer subsidies. <laughs> Most people don't don't seem to understand. So, yeah. so at some point, taxpayers and the government could say, well, we own part of that. And so if, if you want to standardize it, there could be a policy around that. Absolutely. I mean, that's I mean, yeah. yeah, and and think about why, I mean, even today, if you think about the, uh, I mean, uh, one of the uh, reasons sometimes people hesitate to buy an electric vehicle is, be, is, is the range associated with uh, the, the, the driving range, right? I mean, so if I'm going to travel cross country, I have to kind of plan out my trip uh, uh, very carefully. Right? I mean, I need to make sure that there are charges in between. I need to make the necessary stops, right? I mean, but if I'm driving a, a I mean, uh, IC, industrial, I mean, I mean uh, internal combustion engine as a normal vehicle, right? I don't worry at all, right? Because there is a gas pump, a gas station uh, every mile ahead of me and, and I can stop whenever I want, right? And, and uh, to some extent, I mean, I also anticipate something like this happening for electric vehicles. I mean, the gas that we have in our cars today is the same as the batteries that we have in the electric vehicles in the future. Rather than have one big battery, maybe the batteries of the future would be smaller batteries kind of packed e closely to each other. And maybe we might actually stop at the gas station, interchange batteries and then move on. So that might be the gas stations of the future, right? I mean, so standardization can happen in a lot of different ways. And once the technology actually kind of gets well accepted, once a sort of a dominant design emerges out of that process, this notion of dominant design is actually very interesting, right? I mean, people kind of experiment with a lot of different things. And at some point in time, people realize that, you know what, this is actually what makes most sense. And once that dominant design gets established, then I think the industry would be able to kind of take off at a much faster rate. And we are probably reaching that uh, point in the context of the EV industry. There is also, Sri, there's also sort of a leapfrog risk here, right? So suppose I invent a battery uh, that has a range of 1,000 miles, um, for argument's sake, then I don't have a charging need anymore. <laughs> you know, I just charge at home yeah. and I go anywhere I want to. Yeah. 
And so this big infrastructure is being built up is on the premise that the range is a few hundred miles, which may not be true in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so that could be uh, completely obsolete in some, you know, so there's a leapfrog risk I think Tesla is carrying here potentially. So in evolutionary biology, there is this very interesting notion called punctuated equilibrium. I mean, uh, so, I mean, if you think about evolution, right, I mean, the Darwin's theory of theory of evolution is based of the, I mean, uh, uh, there is a survival of the fit, right? I mean, but what that says is over a period of time, I mean, our characteristics, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the people, I mean, the, the uh, I mean, kind of species that survive, right? I mean, they are the ones who seem to have the characteristics or uh, features that suit the environment at that time, right? But, uh, and, and and the way we kind of, uh, I mean, uh, figure this out in a lot of times is by looking at fossils, right? I mean, and you can see that this gradual change somewhat happening, right? I mean, but sometimes you see that uh, uh, there are uh, species with diametrically different, I mean, uh, features kind of coexisting in certain time periods, right? I mean, that doesn't get explained by uh, the typical uh, survival of the fittest argument that Darwin's theory kind of seems to propose, right? I mean, so it's almost like everybody was coexisting at that some uh, at some point in time, right? I mean, and the argument for this is actually, uh, and, and what they call this is actually a punctuated equilibrium. So what could happen is sometimes because of, I mean, maybe mutations, right? I mean, some species actually develop certain distinctive characteristics, right? Different from others. Now, they might be very small, they might not survive, but at some point in time, these mutations become so frequent that at some level, uh, there is this distinct species that kind of gets generated that dominate the other species altogether. And if it happens around the same time in which environment changes too, what can happen is all of a sudden, one particular species is decimated and the other species actually completely dominates within that same, same, same spectra, right? I mean, this is kind of what you're actually talking about when you uh, when you are discuss when when we are discussing the notion of leapfrogging, right? I mean, these incremental improvements kind of keep happening over a period of time, and then suddenly somebody comes with this thousand mile or 1500 mile battery. All of a sudden, everything else kind of vanishes, and there is this one big behemoth that kind of exists. You could even say that's kind of what happened with uh, the iPhones. I mean, sorry, the iPods, right? I mean, everybody was actually looking at uh, ways in which you can actually pack more songs into the phones, I mean, in, 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 into the hard drive, right? I mean, and but all of a sudden, Apple realized, you know what? It's not about whether I have 1,000 songs or 2,000 songs. It's about whether it is easy for me to use the product that I have, right? I mean, and they kind of came up with something. It, it's almost like a mutation. Right? They came up with something completely different and that decimated all the other manufacturers. And we do, I mean, uh, and, and, and it, that's certainly bound to happen at some point in time. Yeah, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. So I want to go into another paper um, from 2012, Consumer Mental Accounts and Implications to Selling Base Products and Add-ons. You say firms in a variety of industries offer add-on products to consumers who have previously purchased a base product. We posit that consumers in making their decisions as to whether to purchase add-ons that complement the base products, find a greater need for the value offered by the add-ons when the unrecovered value 
that is price paid minus the benefits obtained so far on the base product um, is is uh, associated with the base product is higher. Yeah, so so I I, I sort of understand that. So so see, go out go out to buy a base product, and you say I'm going to hold on hold on buying the apps. I got some base apps on the product, and start using it. And you know, I paid hundred bucks for it. I have some valuation in my mind about the base apps that I'm using. It comes to thirty bucks. I'm still seventy bucks short. So I'm still not really willing to go out and buy that super add-on uh, that is being offered, right? Because I'm sort of disappointed in some way on the base product. Is that the problem? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, uh, so a good way to kind of think about it is actually the printer cartridge problem, right? I mean, one of the things that, uh, I mean, uh, this is kind of like penetration pricing, right? I mean, the the predominant strategy that a lot of manufacturers uh, particularly, I mean, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say pioneered, but at least somewhat uh, very uh, well used by HP was to sell the printers for cheap, right? And recoup all the, uh, I mean, profits through uh, sale of cartridges, right? I mean, so the printer was probably 10 bucks, right? I mean, but the fact that it needed cartridges forever, right? I mean, I keep on kind of, buying these cartridges and over a period, and, and these are all, uh, I mean, uh, uh, compatibility is important, so I cannot just go and buy any cartridges, although later on there was the secondary market ecosystem that developed because of this, but in general, that's where they most made most of their revenues from, right? I mean, now the, uh, we were thinking about it, and it makes sense, right? I mean, sell something for cheap, and then over a period of time generate revenue, but there is actually one factor that is overlooked, Right. I mean, let's say I buy a printer for uh, 20 bucks. Right. I mean, I bought cartridges. I used it. I bought cartridges for 30 bucks again. I used it and I kept on doing it for a little bit. What do you think I'll do after some time? I'll just like, why am I spending 30 bucks on this cartridge when I can actually get a new printer for 20 bucks? I'm going to kind of completely sidestep that process and I'll rather than buying cartridges, I'll go and buy a new printer. Right. I mean, on the flip side, if I had actually charged the printer 100 bucks, what do you think I will do? I already incurred the $100 in terms of investment. Now, I'm not going to just throw it away, right? I mean, I, I mean, I need to make sure that I get enough value from the purchase that I made. So I'm going to keep buying cartridges for more time. So this actually means that there are two opposing effects that you need to kind of consider. On the one hand, if you sell the base product for a lower price. What it enables you to do is to sell to a larger set of consumers. More people will buy your base product, right? I mean, and so as a result, you might end up selling more add-ons because each of them might end up buying add-ons. On the flip side, if I keep the price high, then not too many people might buy my base product because, I mean, if it's 100 bucks, I mean, Maybe I will buy, you will buy, a college student might not, right? I mean, so the number of people who will buy the add-ons would be lower, but because they need to spend a lot more on add-ons to recoup the value from the base product, each of them might actually end up buying a lot more add-ons, right? And this is where the whole notion of mental accounting kind of comes in. In mental account, the whole thing, I mean, typically, once I bought the product, the fact that I spend 100 bucks on it or 10 bucks on it, it shouldn't matter in my decisions from there on, right? I mean, I already spent it, right? I mean, 
From that point onwards, my decision on whether to buy cartridges or not, that should be completely dependent upon whether I'm going to get additional value from the cartridges or not. The fact that I spend 100 bucks or 10 bucks, that is immaterial. Right? But we don't think in those terms, though. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for me. So, uh, so I was at uh, Hewlett Packard Inkjet Printer Division. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> in the nineties, and we 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 thought we thought deeply about this. So, one of the one of the issues that we thought about is sort of the brand equity issue, uh, and I think you you sort of mentioned that. So, suppose I sell sort of a plastic box and put an HP tag on it. And consumer looks at it and says, "That ten bucks for it." You know, uh, there is a brand equity issue for a company that sells a lot of superior, high-end products. There is an HP tag on it too, and so um, there's sort of a strategic loss of value <laughs> by that strategy, right? The the, the blade. Uh, shaving blades, razor blade. Uh, uh, cut, I mean, uh, the same kind of philosophy, right? I mean, yeah. sell the. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, blade for uh, cheap and then recoup it through cartridges. Yeah, so I mean, this is an important insight. So what you what you're saying is that there is again an optimization problem in terms of pricing of the base product. I would imagine there is some optimization issue around the timing of the add-ons too, right? Yeah. Suppose I come up with different generations of add-ons, it could also create a lot of confusion in in consumers' mind. You know, should I wait for the next add-on or should I put this add-on? And so manufacturers have a really complex optimization problem for profit maximization. Looks oh, like. it is right. I mean, I don't know whether you recall this, uh, Gil. I mean, uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago when uh, Xbox was actually kind of coming up with their uh, next generation of their consoles, right? I mean, typically when these video game manufacturers kind of come up with their new improvements, one of the things that is always at the top of their mind is, should you make the games backward compatible, right? I mean, on the one hand, I mean, you want to kind of make the games backward compatible because it means that, I mean, I have a vested interest in upgrading, right? I mean, if I have a lot of, uh, I mean, old games, that are there and I can actually get a better experience with the new console, then backward compatibility helps. But at the same time, right, I mean, maybe it might also end up not utilizing the uh, abilities, the capabilities of these consoles very well, right? I mean, so it's a it's a very tricky balance that they need to kind of consider, right? I mean, uh, kind of taking the consumers along with you in this ride of technology evolution while also making sure that, right, I mean, you don't leave too many behind. Right? I mean, and it's never easy and uh, it, it's hard to get the timing right all the time. I mean, sometimes, uh, I mean, and, and, and uh, when the backward compatibility issues, uh, I mean, kind of came up with Xbox, I mean, people, a lot of gamers were disappointed and, 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 and uh, to some extent, they actually kind of uh, decided to skip a generation of consoles, right? I mean, and so these are the issues I mean, that uh, manufacture behavioral issues, I would say. I mean, these are not always, I would say, rational behavior, right? I mean, it turns out that at some point in time, if I'm going to get, get greater value from the next purchase related to the price I pay, I should just go ahead with it. But that's not always true. There are endowment effects. When I own something, I kind of think that it's of more value than when I don't own it, right? I mean, there's this experiments that have been done in uh, by several researchers, behavioral uh, econ researchers, right? I mean, they have, if you, I mean, 
when people are asked to sell something and what they might charge for a product, that's actually inconsistent with what people are actually willing to pay for the same thing. And even if we were to reverse the roles, the same exact effect exists because I'm not willing to give up something because I own it. That's the endowment effect. And somebody else is not willing to pay for that because they don't feel that the ownership effect is no longer impacting their decision making. Right. I mean, so these behavioral effects are very important when you both think about designing products, selling products, pricing products, because ultimately, right, if you don't take the consumers along with you, you are not going to be able to make I mean, value, create value in that process. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge trade-off. Um, I can relate to this, Sri. I'm sitting on a couple of iPads. Apple says they cannot upgrade anymore because the hardware is too old. Uh, I, I have a, a, um, a MacBook Pro from 2013. Apple says the new operating system won't, won't go in there. <laughs> uh, and so, so the manufacturer could come up with some constraints and say, hey, you know, you're using it too long. Um, you, you have to get onto the next one <laughs> because I'm going to not put on the operating system on it anymore. But it also have some negative effects, you know, and sort sort of consumer. Um, again, I go to brand equity, you know, type type issues, right? So if a manufacturer is sort of using tricks to move the consumer along to the next next product, ultimately that has some issue, I think. Um, it does. It does. Yeah. It does, but uh, see so you you froze again. Uh, so if you can hear me, I think you you froze again. Just look at the if the modem switched over. Okay, Sorry, I think we are back. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, so, are, so you were uh, saying, um, yeah, so when, you know, when manufacturer says you cannot, you know, backward, uh, the product is not backward compatible, it has some strategic issues, right? It does, it does. And there are other things that the manufacturers can do along with it, right? I mean, so, and, and, and what they do these days, I mean, think about trade-ins, right? I mean, I mean, uh, you don't want to kind of just throw away your uh, MacBook Pro 13, even if it's uh, 2013, right? I mean, it's like, it works. Why do I want to just throw it away? But if Apple were to kind of tomorrow come and say, you know what, you can trade it to us for $100, right? I mean, you, you might be willing to kind of go through that exercise. You'll kind of give it back to Apple. And even if Apple were to charge the same product that they're selling today, a little bit more, 100 bucks more, on the margin, Apple basically doesn't lose anything, right? I mean, so rather than selling the MacBook Pro for, uh, I mean, uh, 2100, they might actually sell it for 2200 and then say that, you know what, we are running this grand trading program, right? I mean, you bring it back to us, we will pay you 200 bucks and then you can actually use it towards buying the new. You'll be willing to go for it, and 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 this is the thing, right? I mean, we behave very differently as consumers, right? I mean, and sometimes we, I mean, as firms, we might tend to be more focused on what the technology is and what the technology can do, and all the other things that the uh, technology can provide in terms of value, and we forget the most important ingredient of all those things, 
we consumers and how we view and value these products in our own kind of little way right i mean and uh, uh, these things are very important and in fact uh, uh, i mean um, uh, one of the papers that we recently wrote i mean it, it kind of extends this argument even further right i mean this is the consumption bias paper uh, uh, that uh, we had recently completed and uh, it's also based on experiments and um, think about uh, service settings i mean so the the, the, the paper on uh, the uh, the add ons and uh, other that was actually based in a product setting we were kind of wondering whether some of these insights what it means when we are thinking about services services are an interesting brand altogether right i mean typically when there are products right i mean we make the products we stock it on the shelf consumers purchase it you finish it it kind of goes on right i mean so you can actually stock the products and then wait for the demand to materialize services on the other hand production and consumption they happen at the same time so if i am basically giving a haircut for example right i mean i cannot actually stock haircuts right i mean the consumer has to come and then the i mean uh, the, the service provider actually provides that service right when the consumer is there so you cannot i mean so being able to kind of deal with variability uncertainty in uh, things that's much harder in services how much capacity you have that determines the quality of the service that you would eventually provide to consumers right so we were thinking about uh, uh, some of these things in the context of uh, services now how kind of behave circumstances where there is a lot of congestion congestion occurs because of two reasons one is you don't have enough capacity uh why congestion becomes a problem one is you don't have capacity the other could be because there are a lot of consumers who want your product i mean who want your service they are like queuing up for it right i mean and ultimately the quality of the experience the service that they receive it's going to depend upon both the quality of the service as well as the overall experience and if they have to wait for too long they are probably going to be not too happy so managing congestion is very important in many industries right i mean and so one of the recommendations from a practical standpoint and it makes sense to in this context is all right i mean if it turns out that too many people are coming for your service and you just cannot manage it let's actually do one thing let's actually increase the price for the product for the service right it means that only those consumers who have this high willingness to pay they are going to come and queue up for your products naturally what will happen as a result is that the demand goes down lesser number of people come in and as a result of which there's less waiting the experience is better and it automatically justifies the higher price that you are charging them so it's kind of like a self satisfying kind of explanation that we can come up with this is typically what we refer to as admission control you control the admission rate so that it is consistent with the capacity that you have now it makes sense right i mean charging a higher price but think about it in the context of an example again sometimes i kind of i look at my personal experiences to kind of see whether are there inconsistencies in the way we behave that might actually necessitate different kinds of decisions from manufacturers and firms so let's say you have been on a vacation and you you're on a vacation and for the vacation you ended up buying a data plan for let's say 10 right i mean and for those 10 dollars you had a 10 gb data plan 
right? I mean, it's the last day. So you spend 10 bucks, got a 10 GB data plan. It's the last day of your vacation. And you still have about eight or nine GB left. You now see that there is this uh, movie available that you can download and watch. And you need to spend, I mean, it's an on-demand on movie. Would you be willing to, uh, I mean, uh, buy that movie to use up your data plan? Now, chances are some people might actually end up buying the movie. Others might not end up buying the movie. But if it turns out that rather than the 10 GB data plan, it's an unlimited data plan. Would you still end up buying the movie? When we ran this experiment, right? I mean, what we see is the chances of you buying the movie is actually lower when it's an unlimited data plan. The reason being when I have 8 GB left for something which I spent 10 bucks, I'm like thinking, man, I spent 10 bucks. I still have eight bucks remaining. I haven't used up. I haven't gotten enough value from it, right? I mean, so what happens is when you charge 20 bucks instead of 10 bucks, it's no longer eight bucks now. It's actually 16 bucks, right? I mean, so we have this strong sense that we need to get value for what we paid for. It's a mental accounting problem. Exactly. Um, I mean, in every corporation, in every industry, we have the sunk cost problem. <laughs> every every decision cost, is exactly. made incorrectly yeah. by the sunk cost issue. Yeah. Um, but but sunk cost for consumers is actually quite painful. <laughs> you know, so they it, have to somehow. It's very tangible, right? I mean, how much ever we say that it is irrational, for me it is very tangible. The fact that I'm just throwing it away, I cannot do that, right? I mean, and this is exactly kind of uh, interesting when we think about services. Now, let's say as a service provider to manage admission, I'm increasing my price. So I rather than charge 10 bucks for it, I'm going to charge 20 bucks for it. Of course, the number of people who are going to purchase my service is going to be lower. But the downside is because they spend 20 bucks for it, they are going to actually use more of that service. Think about, uh, uh, I mean, uh, Jim. Right. I mean, uh, who is actually kind of uh, selling subscription plans. Right. And typically this is going to be most prevalent when we are thinking about subscription plans. I earlier talked about the uh, uh, lack of separation between production and consumption. Basically, production and consumption happens at the same time. But subscription plans actually adds an another liver to it. It introduces a temporal separation between purchase and consumption. So you purchase the pro I mean, service first and then you consume it over a period of time. Because of that, now you have the ability to consume more than what you might have eventually originally consumed. Right. So if I'm buying a subscription plan, plan for a, a gym membership, right? I mean, I'm spending, uh, I mean, rather than the uh, 10 buck membership, it's actually a $50 membership. I'm like, I need to get. I mean, the intention for providing the $50 membership for the uh, gym was maybe to make sure that only few people come in and so that it's always empty, right? I mean, there is always, uh, I mean, uh, facilities or equipment available when these people come in, right? But if I'm going to spend 50 bucks for it, I'm going to go there and say, you know what? I need to get 50 bucks worth of value from whatever I paid, right? So I'm going to use up everything, right? I mean, so I end up consuming more of the service and under some circumstances, I might actually worsen the congestion problem than actually mitigating it. And so this is the thing that sometimes we need to keep in mind.
Yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty insightful. So, so the, the policy implication for the manufacturer here or a service provider is that if the marginal cost of production is low, uh, you might want to give consumers all you can eat or all you can use services. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, the consumption, the aggregate consumption could be lower than restricting consumption, right? So, um, I mean, but one can measure that and, and, and one can optimize that. So, but, but that's very, very insightful. Do you think, um, do you think mobile uh, phone uh, prov service providers and, and others really understand this phenomenon? They actually absolutely need to kind of keep this in mind, right? I mean, I remember we had this conversation with uh, some AT&T executives, top level executives back in 2015. This was around the time where there's a lot of talk about these uh, few consumers who are actually kind of, uh, there was this talk about uh, mobile phone manufacturers kind of doing away with, uh, I mean, uh, unlimited plans. And our recommendation was don't do that, right? I mean, because if it's unlimited, I only consume what I need. But if it is limited, you're actually imposing mental account uh, behavior on the part of the consumers, right? I mean, you're actually telling them you bought $30 and you have actually got a 2GB plan. You will do everything in your power to actually consume that 2GB plan. While in reality, I needed only about 50 MB of data, right? I mean, so the very thing that you're actually doing to, I mean, uh, reduce, mitigate your congestion might actually cause you to increase that problem. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to finish up with a couple of your uh, recent papers. One of them, sequential pro product development and introduction by cash-constrained startups. You say firms developing novel and innovative products regularly face a, a canonical product development and introduction problem. Introduce a proven and immediately available product or delay product introduction until the successful development of an advanced version. Um, you say limited access to resources for the development of an advanced version adds another wrinkle to this problem, particularly for cash-constrained startups. Um, so cash-constrained startups have less optionality <laughs> in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, they're forced into decisions rather than making their own decisions. Uh, but if they're not cash-constrained, uh, then you have some sort of optimization here, right? In terms of products, yeah. Absolutely, so it kind of goes back to one of the uh, product lifecycle management issues that you had raised earlier in our uh, discussion, uh, Gil. So when firms are actually planning their product portfolio over a, a time period, right? I mean, there are a lot of things that they need to balance, right? I mean, on the one hand, if I were to uh, launch a product in the immediate future, the kind of technologies that I might have access to and the quality of the product that I might be able to generate, the more time I work on something, I'm probably going to be able to, I mean, launch something which is even better, right? I mean, so sequential product introduction needs to balance this, right? I mean, so if I were to delay my introduction, I will end up getting a better quality product, but at the same time, I'm going to sell my existing product for a longer period of time that might not give me that much revenue in the interim, right? I mean, so you need to kind of think about uh, uh, the, the, this trade-off while uh, planning your product life cycle. Right. For, uh, I mean, we were actually thinking, I mean, that's good for typical firms who can keep on improving their product forever. Right. I mean, but what do you what, what happens when you're actually thinking about startups? 
cash constraints is actually an important issue that they need to navigate because if they run out of cash, they go bankrupt. And all the things that they develop in the interim, it's actually just, I mean, uh, it, it's just poof, goes into the wind, right? I mean, and so that's what we wanted. And, and it was actually motivated by, uh, I mean, uh, some interesting interactions that we had for, uh, with some real startups. So there was this... Uh, uh, I mean, uh, orthopedic implant company that uh, we were talking to based out of Boston. I mean, and uh, uh, they had a similar kind of issue. I mean, so they were actually coming up with the next generation of uh, uh, next generation of, uh, I mean, uh, orthopedic, re I mean, uh, I mean, uh, replacements, right? I mean, typically what you tend to do is you have these mechanical pieces that you put in place, right? I mean, that uh, kind of fit reasonably well so that, uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, any kind of discomfort that the patients might have, I mean, it can be uh, eliminated or reduced, right? They actually came up with a very advanced, working on advanced technology that takes up MRI images of your, uh, I mean, uh, body structure. And then you can use those MRI images to kind of come up with a completely customized replacement for anything that you want to kind of put in your body. The advantage of this is, of course, that because it is very customized, the chances of, uh, I mean, any problems are going to be very low. But as you can imagine, anything which is kind of completely revolutionary, ironing of the kinks is going to take a lot of time. And startups don't have a lot of time at their disposal to kind of keep on tinkering with these things. But the good news was, while they were actually kind of developing this, they were also able to kind of come up with some reasonably good variation of existing products that are already in the market, right? I mean... Uh, which would work well, but it's not the, I mean, uh, the, the real goal that they were after. And as they were going through the process, when they hit some cash constraints, when they realized that pretty soon they might run out of cash, they had this, uh, I mean, uh, difficult decision to make. Do we launch this kind of reasonably okay product right now? The cash infusion that you're able to obtain from that would allow them to actually get generate development funds that allow them to kind of continue the development of the advanced technology that they're really after. And the situation they were in was such that they decided they, they, they thought it made sense for them to kind of go through with it. And so they went to the doctors, hospitals, worked with their hospitals and said that, you know what, uh, I mean, this is still much better than anything that is out there in the market today. You're not going to have any problems. And they were like, you need to kind of use this. And they were able to convince a bunch of hospitals to go along with it. The problem was, I mean, although it was predominantly good news under most circumstances, for some patients, it really did not work well. And they developed some complications. The good news, however, was the development funds allowed them to actually kind of continue the development of the uh, advanced technology and two years later they were able to get the FDA approval and they were ready to launch the new product but this actually left a poor taste in a lot of hospitals and doctors I mean uh, minds right I mean so when they went back with the advanced technology to kind of get acceptance from them they were always referring back to the previous thing you know what you, you told me then also that you know what nothing will go wrong but how can I trust you today right I mean so there is this additional constraint and challenge that comes when you are a startup problem. Sometimes you might have to launch something to generate the cash, but it's actually going to come back and bite you because the lower quality is what? The brand equity that you talked about earlier, Gil, 
that's going to be even bigger issue for startups because they don't have any established reputation that they can lean upon to be able to kind of weather any storms that might happen in between right i mean so how do you balance this on the one hand launching an existing product that you have allows you to generate cash to sustain the development process but you also are compromising your long term profitability and that's the question that we were asking in that uh, paper yeah it's very really interesting sri i mean in some sense this is an arbitrage right uh, or we it in a in a private market yeah so if if a startup company a cash constrained startup company is making suboptimal launch timing decisions uh, perhaps a private equity firm can can step in and arbitrage the inefficiency in that decision uh, somewhere right yeah um but the problem is these are private markets you can't really sometimes get to the right people at the right time uh and so founders uh, end up making suboptimum decisions but it's unfortunate i mean especially in life sciences the timing of the product launch is critical um yeah. and and the first few customers that you get um how you do them uh, are so critical so yeah i mean it feels like some sort of an arbitrage there <laughs> some sort well, absolutely know. right i mean and 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 it's all the more uh, critical for startups because i mean for large firms i mean if it turns out that one product did not do too well it's just a i mean lost opportunity right i mean okay they'll move on to something else for startups it's basically do or die for them if they don't succeed once they are not going to succeed at all right i mean and this bankruptcy risk and the constraints that they typically face kind of adds a completely different twist to the typical problems that established firms uh, exist but in general right i mean when you think about the sequential product introduction problem i mean if it turns out that you have a better quality product at hand right i mean typically what you might want to do all things remaining the same is to launch it earlier right I mean, you have a better product it means that more likely that you would want to launch it right away we find something which is kind of counterintuitive in this context when we think about startups and a lot of these counterintuitive results as we call it it becomes evident once you kind of understand the real trade offs underneath right i mean and so the thing to keep in mind is that for startups the reason why they might sometimes end up launching the uh, existing that lower quality product is not purely profits it's actually to generate the cash to sustain the development of your in uh, the advanced product right i mean let's say now that you are uh, i mean uh, product in hand thing which you can actually kind of commercialize very quickly is a better quality product on the one hand launching it right now will give you greater cash infusion but that's not what you are really after right what you really want to do is basically be successful in launching the advanced product and you don't know how many tries it might take you will it be one year two years or five years now if you have a better quality product you want to make i mean if you if i mean you want to make sure that the advanced product is not compromised at all in any way because launching an existing product the lack of brand equity and all those things is going to compromise the profitability from that product at some point in time so you want to hold off on that as much as possible it turns out that this product is actually of a better quality that means that i don't need to launch it right away i can wait for a little bit more time see whether my advanced product 
becomes successful, becomes promising at that point in time. If indeed it becomes promising at that point in time, I might be able to go to a private investor or a private equity firm. They might be willing to finance it. I have a much better I mean, a product at hand. I'm going to be successful. But if it turns out that in the immediate short term, these things did not work out, because this is actually a pretty good product, I know, I'm confident, even if I were to launch it then, the cash infusion it will provide me at that point in time will give me enough of a, uh, an option to extend the life, I mean, uh, the, 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 uh, the development timeline for my advanced product. So counterintuitively, you might want to kind of delay the introduction of a better quality product if you are a startup. And so uh, it, it, it's a very interesting twist because of that uh, timeline that uh, cash constraints uh, induces on uh, how startups behave. Yeah, it's also a marketing problem because you could brand things differently. Yes. Right? So you you could you could have the inferior quality product, let's let's call it, uh, go under a different brand, and then you hold on to the superior product under a different brand. Yes. So so ultimately, you know, it's a combination of marketing and financing problem. But there is always value in waiting. <laughs> this is a part not even large companies understand really well. The option value in waiting yeah. could be quite high when you have a lot of uncertainty, right? Um, which is not you know, really appreciated, not even you know, very sophisticated large firms. It's good to be patient. It's good. It's good to be patient, yes. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Sri. Thanks so much for spending time with me. No, absolutely, Gil. This has been a pleasure. I mean, I'm sorry. I think there were some little technical hiccups in oh, no, no. but hopefully it all kind of worked out in the end. But uh, I mean, it's always fascinating to kind of talk to somebody and uh, explain some of the things that you're doing and also gain your perspectives. Some of the experiences that you mentioned, I mean, I think uh, it kind of fits in right well with the context. I mean, uh, and I always believe that uh, the best uh, kind of works sometimes come by looking inward. I mean, uh, looking at your own experiences and then see where it actually fits in the larger scheme of things, right? I mean, so hearing people's experiences and understanding how they go about making decisions, they're actually very valuable. I mean, uh, to kind of think about, uh, I mean, uh, how, uh, I mean, we need to kind of act and rea react in certain circumstances. Excellent. Yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Gil. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.